to leave, leave this podcast and go and get a train up to Cheshire to do the Alderley Edge Walk tomorrow morning with, oh, Alan, wow. with Alan Garner. And Peter Hook. <laughs> Peter Hook. Peter, no, it's the other two, isn't it, that live in the Alderley Edge? No. Um, and no, they live in Macclesfield. Oh, right. Yeah, outside Macclesfield. Macclesfield. So I've been to there, and they do have tanks and... Mm-hmm. Light uh, armoury and armed vehicles on mm. the premises. What, Gillian and Stephen? Yeah, Stephen. No, no Stephen's got a collection yeah. of, of attack vehicles. It's better than being passive aggressive, isn't it? You just kind of just aggressive. <laughs> just aggressive. <by> attack. <laughs> aggressive, aggressive. Is he, is he interested in World War Two or something, or just uh, armed vehicles? Well, Geordie Vision had quite a kind of um, they had a hint of contentious <laughs> relationship with the. Uh, yeah. So uh, at the weekend at the Whitstable Biennale, or Biennial, both of which were used by one person when describing it. A nice event, to be fair, it was very nice. One of the events there was, uh, I went to a really good, really interesting talk by Philip Hall, and I went to another one with uh, Olivia Lang, that was really fascinating. And I also participated in the all-day public reading of All the Devils Are Here by David Seabrook. How did it go? Oh, God, it was such a strange but (laughs) great event, as you would expect. Was anyone listening? So what happened was... (laughs) Well, no, listen, it was was at the Whitstable Museum in the courtyard behind the museum, and the day started at 11am with a panel of people who'd known David Seabrook at different times in his life. The filmmaker Paul Tickell, the writer Ian Sinclair, and a friend of his from university... And what became very clear uh, very quickly is that Seabrook was every bit as idiosyncratic (laughs) as you might expect. And that Sinclair said he'd met him in the 80s when Sinclair had a bookstall very near where we're talking now, in the old market, which isn't really there anymore, up at um, Angel. The the Angel Passage? Yeah. Yeah. So he had a bookstall there and Seabrook would come, seek him out and press pamphlets on him that he, Seabrook, had written. Wow. And then more or less recite them to Ian Sinclair. And Sinclair said that all the devils are here. He said, bits of all the devils are here. He can remember David Seabrook shouting at him (laughs) in the 1980s. And that, I, imagine, I imagine that David Seabrook wasn't big on personal space either. No, indeed, and, well, no, indeed, as you would expect, like we said, he gives you an ear bashing, gives the reader an ear bashing, they'll never forget. The, but, but saying there must have been that all the devils are here is made up of other bits and pieces that he wrote. Where those might be now, nobody seems to know. Where the manuscript of his third book might be, nobody seems to know. And the other thing that's worth saying, I won't go into detail here, but that his friend from university, you just had to say to him, I really like David's work, and he would laugh. It clearly, <laughs> clearly, you know, what, the more I find out about him, the more fascinated I am by him. Anyway, the reading itself over the course of the day was just really, really good. People came and went. Some bits were incredibly engaging, other bits weren't. But I don't know if anyone listening to this has, has read All the Devils Are Here since we talked about it. The thing that kept happening while people were reading is you would drift in and out of listening to it, and then suddenly there'd be some little sentence or fact or, or rant that would pull you right back into the present, right back into the book again. Exactly that thing we talked about of having somebody 
buttonholing you in the corner of a pub. Really, really good. It, and it lasted about eight hours, this reading. Was it a way of praising the book in terms of being able to tell, what, as it was being read out, this is a weak passage, this is a good passage, this is holding people's attention, this isn't? Yes. Uh, although, if I were being scrupulously honest, I would also say it was a very good control over the varying reading abilities of those people involved. Right. 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 If you were given, as somebody was, a, a bit of a court report to read and you've never seen it before, which was the case in this, the plucky member of the public who volunteered to come and do that clearly struggled with it. And so maybe the text didn't survive that too well. But then once you got show-offs... Such as myself. <laughs> Which bit did you read? And, and, and Andrew Mayle was there and Jason Hazley was yeah. there. And... Andy read chapter one, chapter two, <laughs> chapter three, and chapter four. Four and a half. Yeah. I read the beginning of the Broadstairs chapter and then a little bit later on something else because somebody had, had, had dropped out. So I didn't make it to Deal. I didn't make it to Charles Hawtree. Oh, but I did get to do the Lord Haw Haw bit, which I was very, great, yeah. very uh, pleased about. It's just remarkable. Well, what a great thing to have done. It was really, I'm really pleased they did it as well. I mean, it, it I mean was, it's a weird thing to do, isn't it? It's an odd book, I would have thought, for a read-through, because it's so strangely personal. Yeah. Like a, like, I, mean, I always think of it like a, one of those sort of 60s Nouvelle Vague documentaries, mm-hmm. which is the, the jump cuts, lots yeah. and lots of jump cuts and, and non-sequiturs and sort of strange. It's, it's... I mean, but in general, I thought it stood up really, really well to being publicly declaimed. Yeah. Uh, and the other, thing, the other thing was that there was a slight element of... Because, as I say, people, all, the audience came and went as is the nature of these things. There was a slight element of if a tree falls in a forest and no-one is there to see it <laughs> at various points. It's a temptation but, not just to start embroidering, just kind of, you know, start <laughs> making up, just to see if everybody was paying attention. Yeah. Which poor person got the, got the final chapter? Uh, I don't know, I, I was long gone. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed it, don't get me as wrong. Steve would say, finish my bit and left As Steve would say, it was time for me to go. <laughs> it's time for me to move on. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Backlisted, the podcast which seeks to give new life to old books. As ever, we're seated in the offices of Unbound, the website which brings readers and writers together to make great books. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, and... I'm Andy Miller, the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously, and uh, we're joined today, as ever, by the writer and iconoclast, Matthew Clayton. <laughs> Good afternoon. Folk, oh, we don't say that. Folk Nazi, as he's known to some. And we're also joined by the author and thinker, uh, Richard King, author of a wonderful book that came out last year called Original Rockers, which has just come out in paperback. Hello, Richard. Hello. Uh, do you know, um, if you call someone an iconoclast, I always think of Captain Haddock. <laughs> That's your Zeus. Exactly. It's a great, it's a, I think it's a real compliment. Yeah. Because he was iconoclastic, or just yeah. Well, his his vocabulary, I think, needs to be reintroduced to the national yeah. curriculum. Didn't, didn't, didn't they? Put, they had he had an obituary in the Times, didn't he? Famously, <laughs> Captain Haddock. No, no, no. I was thinking <laughs> Captain Birdseye. <laughs> no, <it's not. laughs> so, uh, so yeah. So we're joined by Richard King. Richard and Richard has chosen a book for us to read, which we're going to be talking about in a while, called Maiden Voyage by Denton Welch. Yes, 
Denton Welch and Tintin may have had something in common, if I think uh, about yeah, it. Yeah, that's quite a nice little uh, unexpected segue. Yeah. Um, John, qu'est-ce que c'est que tu as lu pendant cette semaine? I've been reading uh, a remarkable book by a remarkable writer, Jay Griffiths, um, called Tristomania, A Diary of Manic Depression, which may sound like a bit of a downer. And indeed, there are some um, there are some very very harrowing passages in this book. But uh, I, I guess most people who know Jay Griffith's work will probably know her for her remarkable book, uh, Wild, about uh, really our relationship with the natural world, which I think is a kind of kind of er text for what we might call the new the new nature writing. Yes, um, I, I think it's a book that started a vogue for putting the writer in between the landscape and the reader, uh, something Richard maybe did as well. Mm. And I'd say that this vogue has now possibly <laughs> reached, possibly verged to, on the unfashionable now. Yeah. Um, I think too much nature writing is, is, is memoir and autobiography and a nice long walk. Yeah. Well, indeed, all of those things do take place in this book, although I would say, like in any genre, there are people who do it well and there are people who do it less well, and I like the cut of Jay Griffith's jib uh, <laughs> a lot because I think as a kind of, you know, I think she sort of started it in a, in a way. Richard, maybe with Nature Cure, a book that I like less than I like Tristomania, although sure. there are very much... Uh, we'll get depressed after there are connections well I mean you know and the book the sort of the background I suppose she she puts her she puts her kind of cards on the table fairly early on saying you know uh, hypermania there's a difference between depression and manic depression she likes to call it manic depression rather than bipolar she put I mean she's alive to to words um Tristomania, which is the title of the book, was coined in the right, 18th century American psychiatrist called Benjamin Rush. And he, she says, it, you know, it was a sort of, it works perfectly, she says, for the tristesse, the distress coupled with mania, which a mixed state bipolar episode provides. And this is, the book is an account of a, a major episode in her life. She was finishing uh, the the. the the book Kith, which is about children, another remarkable book. Um, she was in a kind of a heightened state. Anybody who's ever written a book and has worked through the proofs and the index and the, the stress of getting it into publication knows that you're probably in a, in a fairly vulnerable state. Something very unpleasant happened to her, which kick-started a, 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 a manic-depressive episode. But being a, a, a kind of a writer, her, I guess the point of this book is to explore... She writes at one point a rather beautiful way. She says, it, depression is like an octave played below reality. Mania is an octave played above. Mm -hmm. And she writes, in a way, the book is more about the mania than it is about the depression, which yeah. I think it's... If you were going to get, get kind of artsy-fartsy about it, if, if uh, you know, The Noonday Demon by Andrew Solomon, which I think is probably the, the, the great modern text, you know, our version of The Anatomy of Melancholy mm -hmm. uh, about depression... If that's like a sort of 19th century symphony, this is definitely this book is definitely a, a kind of a chamber piece, a, a late Beethoven quartet. She gets very, very sick. And she heals herself by walking uh, the, the Camino uh, to Santiago. And on, in its baldest kind of way, that is the journey that she takes. But the brilliant thing is that she writes, I think, more accurately about that sense of the connection between trying to take the most complex 
psychological states that you find yourself in. She writes with such precision. That's her language doesn't ever kind of gets get sort of soppy or saggy. And even if you haven't been through this, she, she, she's also a scholar. You know, she, she doesn't just give you the, here is my sad, unhappy uh, episode, make of it what you will. She kind of burrows down into it. So one of the things I liked, just read a little tiny bit here, was about the word woad, which woad was the old English word for mad, meaning frenzied. And it was replaced in the end by, by mad. Mad denotes the crazy state, but it connotes little. Woad, though, carries connotations and etymological links which give insight of a whole other order into the madness of manic depression. The Indo-European root is wet, to blow, inspire, and spiritually arouse. Wet is the source of the Latin vates, meaning seer or poet, and also the source of the old Irish word faith, or fate, meaning poet. Woad is linked to Old English woth, meaning sound, melody, and song, and cognate with the Old Norse Odur, meaning mad, frantic, furious, violent. As a noun, Odur means mind, wit, soul, sense, song and poetry. Woad is linked to Odin too, god of war and wisdom, shamanism and poetry. The Roman historian Tacitus considered that Mercury was the chief god of the Germanic tribes, almost certainly because he saw in Odin the qualities of Mercury. Odin, like Mercury, was a guide of souls and was said to have brought poetry to humankind. Anyway, just a kind of a little bit of... The, the journey that the book takes you on. If you have ever had to uh, uh, deal with anyone, if you've ever been depressed or you've ever had to deal with anybody being depressed, I mean, I would recommend that this book as a, as a brilliant... It would sit alongside Andrew Solomon or the very great book, The Unquiet Mind, K. Redfield Jameson, mm-hmm. as a really... It, I mean, without being in any way insulting to Matt Haig, who also wrote a very good book, this is a very different order of book to Matt Haig's book. It's, it's deep... It's deep, and, uh, uh, it's deep and elusive. There's a wonderful passage where she's talking about plea bargaining. Mercury is the god of mania. She's plea bargaining with Mercury. Mm-hmm. And there's just a, it's a, just a tiny little bit more, just to give you a sense. Because one of the amazing things about the book is it ends up in poetry. So she says, I was bargaining hard with Mercury. Give me metaphor and I'll let you run, run wild in my mind. But if you continue to make me lose my mind, and your job in myth was to find Psyche, not to lose her, I will drag you down to earth with drugs. So behave a little bit better, Mercury, just a bit, or be damned with drugs, for I have to find a softer landing to Plinlimon, Powys, happiest country in Britain, of which I am not a shining example. Then Mercury offered truce terms to psychiatry in turn. Now he was plea bargaining. Keep the doses low and I'll give you poems. Deal. A game of forfeit played for poems. Now, there's maybe an archness to this, but... Actually, the wonderful thing at the, the, at the end of the book, she puts the poems that she wrote, and they're wonderful. And, and you know, I just, it's the first time I've read Jay Griffith's poetry, and it, and it kind of works. So the book for me was... It's a, it, it's, there are a lot of books about depression out there. There are a lot of books that are there to help people. This is not... You know, I'm not suggesting that this should be sort of issued to everybody who's, no. who's in that condition. But if you're, if you're a thoughtful person and you're interested in, 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 the, in the relationship between language and the mind anyway. This is an extraordinary... I like books, I have to say, increasingly, that show a sort of iron discipline over particularly unruly subjects, of that, which, which this clearly does, while managing to retain some of the energy... She's got, she's just got that sort of forensic about. skill. She just writes with such, such fluency and such honesty. And, I mean, yeah, there are, there are, there's also, as you could get a little bit in there, there is a sense of humour. She, I mean, she's a very serious writer, but there is a sense of humour in there, mm. the, the madness, that kind of antic. 
And I was like, also, I was lucky enough to see her read from it at Hay on Why. I'd never heard her read before. And she's, I mean, it was pretty mesmeric. Um, it's, anyway, so I, it, it, I huge, hugely recommend it. It was also, it's a, it's a, I think, a really genuinely important uh, addition to the canon on literature. You know, William Styron, that, that kind of... Mm. <sighs> Follow that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but to, to more cheerier climbs, let's go to... <laughs> Not necessarily, but I'll give it a go. <laughs> let's go to Iceland. OK. Andy, what have you been yeah. reading? Yeah, so I've been reading a book, a new novel by the Icelandic writer Sjön, S-J-O-N, uh, called Moonstone, to which has been appended in the English translation a subtitle that I'm not actually going to repeat because, on reflection... It's, it's, it's a spoiler for the whole book. It's better if you don't know what the subtitle is. I'm looking yeah. over your shoulder now to see what it is myself. Oh, right, OK. You see what I mean? Yeah. You know, yeah. You, that's, the, twi- that's the twist. I'm looking at it and wondering what that adds. Do you think um, novels should have subtitles? Sure, why not? Sometimes, maybe... I'm, I'm, There's a lot of shrugging, nodding, shaking of heads going I think, around. I hate it when it says, an, I've always hated a novel. A novel, yes. I think, it's like... I think in contemporary art, uh, pieces of work that are called untitled rather than just without a title, yeah. and non-fiction that has a, a, a subtitle that often has is made of two clauses, <laughs> are both real... You know, have problems with both. I think they both barriers un- to they entry, undermine yeah. <laughs> the work itself, and they're definitely barriers to entry. That would be a good. But they also so. sort of, they also bring bring the whole process of of the back end of how things are hung on a gallery yeah. wall or how things are published yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in, into the reader or viewer's mind, which and they it, don't need to be unnecessary there. handrails. It's a huge problem in yeah. our culture. Is it yeah. sort of it's the art sort of lacks its. Such confidence that you know. Take the stabilizers off. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, we're talking of stabilizers. I mean, yeah, Shut up. Right. So, sorry. so this book by Sion called Moonstone. I, uh, as a long-term listener will remember, went to Iceland a few months ago and was recommended before I went several books about Iceland, including a short and brilliant novel by Sion called The Blue Fox. Um, This was published in Iceland. Moonstone was published in Iceland about three or four years ago. And similar to The Blue Fox is a very short novel. I hesitate to say novella because... Lovely word. Yeah. But also his books, I now realise, are like incredibly condensed uh, epics that they manage to deal with a real historical sweep of events Mm -hmm. and also a brilliant shifting of perspective um, as the book goes on he does that in The Blue Fox and he does it in Moonstone where you suddenly are wrong footed as the reader by trying to work out whose version of events you are reading and whose version of events you have been reading Mm -hmm. which is why I don't want to mention what this subtitle is Um, because it spoils one of the very sort of brilliant and rather psychedelic shifts of um, tone towards the end of the book. This is set in Reykjavik in um, 1918 to 19. Uh, It's based around the early days of Icelandic cinema and it's also based around the arrival of Spanish flu in 
Iceland. And it I'm sounds just like you just pick three random subjects. <laughs> I know, but that's the ge- that therein lies the genius of it. Mm-hmm. To have woven those things together, all of which would provide other writers with epic novels on one relentlessly flat plane. <coughs> you know, here he manages to, to weave in and out of these big stories. So I'm just going to read this, this very, very short bit. Uh, this is after the arrival of Spanish flu. Reykjavik has undergone a transformation. An ominous hush lies over the busiest, most bustling part of town. No hoofbeats, no rattling of cartwheels or rumble of automobiles, no roar of motorcycles or ringing of bicycle bells, no rasp of soaring from the carpenter's workshops or clanging from the forges or slamming of warehouse doors, no gossiping voices of washerwomen on their way to the hot springs, no shouts of dock workers unloading the ships, or cries of newspaper hawkers on the main street, no smell of fresh bread from the bakeries, or waft of roasting meat from the restaurants, the doors of the shops neither open nor close, no one goes in, no one comes out, no one hurries home from work, or goes to work at all, no one says good morning, no one says good night. You know, like it's like a brilliantly, deliberately postcard-like evocation of something that isn't there at all. Um, How unlike the home life of our own dear Queen. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I, I found with both of the novels by Sion that I've read, they are, you can read them in a matter of two or three hours, hmm. but then they just lodge in your head for days. I, and I found this one particularly really... You know we were talking about a few episodes ago about Barbara Cummings... This has a similar kind of... And in fact, Maiden Voyage, to bring it around to the book yeah. we're going to talk about today, it has a similar domestic nightmare element that you feel you know where you are and then something literally and metaphorically feverish grips you, the reader, and takes you somewhere you don't want to go. Mm. And at the end of this book, there is the most fantastic um, uh, twist in that narrative thing that I'm talking about, which is like something that John Fowles would have done in the 60s very heavily and laboriously in the space of two sentences. It's so exquisitely, carefully done. And it seems to me that with Sion, the whole idea of his books is all about restraint and balance. They wouldn't work if you had one or two sentences too heavy. You would tip the thing over. Um, I really, really... I, I can't recommend them highly enough and I also feel he's a writer like all great writers like Denton Welch like B.S. Johnson as we said before where the more of their work you read the more brilliant their work becomes because you begin to understand the territory that they've mapped out for themselves and they're all essentially the same book that too (laughs) is is there much more in English translated into English yeah there are four or five but there are there are more in um, Icelandic Icelandic. and uh, if you're listening to this Sjörn is he, he fo- extant? Yeah, he followed, he followed us on Twitter. Excellent. We love you. Great. <laughs> well, I love you. I can't speak for the others. Um, no, that, that's, that's, as always, that's a, a remarkably uh, alluring kind of uh, bit of book. I mean, I, that thing about novella, always, uh, you say, you know, nobody refers to As I Lay Dying as a novella, do they? Or The Great Gatsby. Or The Great Gatsby. Long, yeah. no. 45,000 words, The Great yeah. Gatsby. 
Well, oh, God, this is. I, I apologise to listeners that we're, we're we're drifting into the the publishing world chatter. But what is a novella? I mean, is it, is it a long short story? You know, I think if I, I think that it doesn't really. Those terms are not really. No. It's, made up isn't it fiction we'll pick this up again after some marvellously witty and interesting adverts so we have it's all fiction but that's appropriate to make well actually it's very very appropriate to make a voyage because it's it's quite odd that this book isn't that's the first thing that struck me is that uh, well before uh, you could you you pick it up and it's 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 it so feels like a, a a novel uh, to begin with, that it's quite difficult to, to, to take it as a, a memoir. But maybe that's a way of opening up Denton Welch, who he, what this book... Richard, just, do you want to say a little bit about, yes, about Maiden Voyage I before we about Denton Welch? Yes, Maiden Voyage is... John's point about how, you, how or why you'd need to categorise it is very germane, because... Um, I think some people have read it thinking it's a straightforward autobiography. Some people have read it as... A piece of fiction. I think it not only does the subject, but the way in which it's written, map its own world and fall through lots of cracks, deliberately so. Um, we've all read lots of books where we're aware that there's something uncanny happening between the author and the world around him. Um, there's a very lovely-looking copy of The Rings of Saturn on the shelf yeah. behind John. Um, most of the books I've read in that idiom, tend mm. to have been written by people who have lived and lived quite heavy lives. The Rings of Saturn, of course, starts off in a hospital bed. Yeah. This is a book which has that sense to it, but is written by a young person. Mm. And there is something rather overwhelming at the surface and then being submerged again throughout this book where the youth overwhelms the author but he also appears to be so old beyond his years and there's a self-consciousness throughout it that is borders on the confessional and there's always this sense that we're actually going to have the reveal of what's actually going mm, on yeah. and it never quite arrives <laughs> so very good. Yeah. It's just, yeah. I, mean, uh, I think I should just do what we do yeah. on Batlisted and read that I've got an old um, lovely uh, old Penguin edition of this. It ha- the blurb on the back is actually a biograph- biographical note about Denton Welsh. Um, the blurb here is on the inside cover, so I'm going to read the blurb. It says, and I have to say, I'm going to say this in advance, I read this earlier and thought, like, God, I wish blurbs were like this now. <laughs> OK, here we go. In her foreword to Maiden Voyage, Dr Edith Sitwell <laughs> describes Denton Welsh as, quote, a born writer. And it was by the publication of this, his first book, that he achieved his place in English letters. (laughs) The opening chapters give an account of his last term at a public school and of his running away on the day he was to return there. After that, his father, who was at that time in China, wrote suggesting that his son should go out to join him. And so it was that he went to a country whose atmosphere could not have been more suitable for his inquiring and unusual mind. He observed everything, missed nothing, and deliberately involved himself in every variety of experience. (laughs) And he records it all here, the events, impressions, and sensations of his maiden voyage, with amazing frankness and simplicity. That's that's really good. It's pretty good, isn't it? I I have an extract here from um, 
his final days at public school. Shall I read that? Yeah, 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 yeah. please. To give a sense of his tone and indeed his um, this self-consciousness we mentioned. This is chapter nine, uh, the beginning of chapter nine. One cold morning, the whole school stood on the field where the monks had once had their tile kiln. We were waiting to be marched off in companies to Willington. We were going to have a field day. I looked to see what my rations were. I found an apple, a pork pie and a bar of chocolate. The shouted commands rang out excitedly in the clear, biting air and I felt suddenly thrilled, as if our pretense at soldiering were serious and heroic. There was nothing serious about our railway journey. Some people expressed themselves by ordering coffee with two lumps of sugar wrapped in paper, just as if they were independent citizens and not schoolboys. But others seemed to want more scope. One unfortunate in my carriage had his trousers taken off and chewing gum rubbed in his pubic hair. He screamed a lot, but I think he really enjoyed the publicity. <laughs> There's a, I'm going to just very quickly add to that. There's a wonderful bit when, when he leaves his school for the last time with his brother. I think this is legitimate because it, we, what we need to say about this book, that it has... Being able to tell you what the plot is, it's almost impossible to there, tell. Um, there is no, there is no, no plot. plot. It yeah. Yeah. But the style in which it's written is everything. Yeah. And um, there's, a, there's a part here, I, I just want to draw attention to specific words that made me occasionally laugh because I thought they were so perfectly chosen. So they're, they're on a train, moving away from the school. We ate our breakfast flippantly. <laughs> knowing that we would have our real meal on the train. My brother with four others had chartered the ancient Rolls-Royce to take us to the station. It swayed rakishly, like an enormous perambulator. I looked out from its dark felt and leather interior and said goodbye to everything at once, to the houses, the trees, the hills, the boys, the masters, to the lovely church and the saw red gymnasium (laughs) as we rocked past the village cross we saw with amazement that the ball had been broken off the top it lay at the foot of the steps amongst thick white pieces of broken crockery someone had evidently tried to crown the cross with a chamber and the top had broken off we gave mock groans to show what a dreary old joke we thought it was i secretly thought it very daring but was furious that the ball had been broken off the cross I was glad to know afterwards that it had fallen on the toes of the vandal and it had crushed them black and blue. It was thrilling to be in your own clothes again, to feel the softness of the collar and to be hatless. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I... I, John, did you enjoy reading this? Yeah, I've got another... I'll read it in a minute, just just because... I I can't remember... Page by page, I think it's just a... It's just a, a remarkable, you know, that thing about a, a, a great work sort of it makes its own genre. Because mm, yeah. what what is this <laughs> exactly? Yes. And I think what I think now is that I'll read things that will remind me of Denton Welch. Quite. And if you've not read it, it's quite difficult to explain precisely what the. But the beginning of this book is one of the most. Um, it's just one of the most remarkable sort of almost. It almost has that sort of Dickensian slightly. Slightly kind of trippy, where he 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 goes, he go decides he he's got five pounds in his pocket, and he he goes to Salisbury, and then to Exeter, and then walks to Budley Salterton, and you know you're, he you're acts 
First of all, the character within the, within the book, it seems to me, acts almost exclusively on impulse. He does. But then he's recalling with brilliant clarity the emotional process that has caused that, which, that behaviour. Which, right? which reminded yeah. me of sort of almost, almost like a sort of modern Copperfield or, or Pip. I mean, it's, there it, is that, but all those Dickensian characters come from, you know, uh, they don't come from this position of privilege and no. wealth. And it's his self awareness at where he's coming from. And his desi- desire to go and look at cathedrals. Yes. And it's this sort of precocious and 16 year old. Yes. Mm. And, and so he, it's really benefited him, this education, this position he's in in yeah. society. But he really reacts against it with every footstep away from the school and every wander around the cathedral. And he's so aware of his his own sense of uniqueness or his own perceived and, sense of uniqueness. And he goes back to the blacking factory yeah. and it turns out to be actually fine. <laughs> <laughs> you think, you know, you're dreading him going back to school. It's fine. But actually, you know... <laughs> He's a bit of a hero. In fact. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody treats him really quite nicely. Yeah. It's, found it's a very, very peculiar and strange and... Uh, and, and Addictive book, I think. Mm. I, I, it, it, I absolutely loved it. Thank you, Richard, yeah, for making us read it. I absolutely loved it. And the book, it, it reminded me of several books. It, but they're all books that it strikes me that are not necessarily easy to read, but which, once they are in there, sit in your head for, for months and years afterwards. It re, I, I read last year... Um, Stevie Smith's novel on yellow paper. It yeah. really reminded me of novel on yellow paper. Yeah. That, that it has that same kind of, I am writing with almost insolent selfishness about the things I want to write about. Yes, and there's an investigation of sexuality in both. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. The, but it also has that really um, uh, uh, Huisman's-like me- compulsion to meticulously catalogue everything, to pick up every precious object be it an antique mm. or a thought or a feeling, and describe it accurately to find it and then set it down again without breaking yeah. it. It's so careful. So it made me think that Chatwin must have been a dental Yes, Welsh absolutely, fan. yes. Well, I first heard of Denton Welsh through reading Modern Nature by Derek Jarman, which okay, I great. think is, is the... Is the Ur nature book that doesn't get mentioned in all these litany of Brilliant. you know yeah. one of the best books about landscape and, and and written by someone who could actually do some gardening you know, yeah. and live and lived in the mid, and lived uh, in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So <laughs> this extract from um, Modern Nature: finished my breakfast on the sofa, covered by by my grandmother's old travelling rug. I read Denton Welsh's memoirs, crystalline descriptions, and acute observations. I wish writing came naturally to me. Now, there there are a couple of things going on here. One, talking about grandmother's old travelling rug is is pure Denton Welsh. This (laughs) this fetishisation of the object and the heirloom and and having a sense of the sort of um, hinterland of where the object came from. Secondly, I don't know if you've seen the films Jarman made for Marion Faithfull's Broken English... Uh, black and white films, not really videos. So when are we talking about that? This is early 80s, isn't it? Uh, very end of the 70s, early 80s. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But they are figures wearing amulets and helmets and Greek masks, and they're all caught in the sunlight. I don't know what, quite what it has to do with broken English, but as usual, it's an incredible piece of 
dream cinema. Mm. And this idea of light reflecting off objects and objects having a, a, a value beyond their material value seems to me Welch sort of drifts through life needing to find these objects as a kind of yeah. map yeah, through yeah, his yeah, own yeah. life. And, and he did collect them, didn't he? He collected yes. little silver... Silverware china. Houses. I mean, there's one line, uh, <coughs> I don't want to misquote it towards the end of the book, where he goes to an antique sale with his friend who says, oh, they've got some quite nice pieces there. And he says something like, oh, I love looking for bits of China when I'm in China that aren't from China. (laughs) (laughs) But he he really likes other people not knowing as much as him or getting getting, um, built by uh, by other antique dealers, doesn't he? Oh, yes, and he likes seeing seeing, um, people waste their money on fakes. And he at the end of the book, without spoiling anything, he tries to kind of rinse his father of the heirlooms that his mother would have given him. Can I read uh, a talk just on objects and the psychological value of objects and the way that he's able to... and and how objects stand for, you know, like like in the... Harry Potter parlance, a kind of horcrux, you know, with lots of emotions mm-hmm. kind of vested in these things. He's remembering an occasion with his aunt, who he has a complex relationship with. At last, something happened which shook our confidence in each other. We were on board ship, and my aunt had come to see us off. As we waited for the siren to blow, I asked my aunt if she would let me play with her ring. It was a strange scarab, most fascinating. I think I really imagined that it was alive. She took it off gave it to me, and went on talking to my mother. Leaning out of the cabin window to get more light, I held the ring above my head and gazed at it. Then something happened. The next moment I heard the ring rattling down the slit into which the window frame fitted. Too horrified to speak, I just looked at my aunt. I saw the realisation of what had happened dawn on her face. The whole partition would have to be taken down before the ring could be found. My aunt picked up the box of little wooden toys she had given me. Each one was a perfect little teapot, coffee pot or cup and saucer. I loved them. She held them by her shoulder for a moment. Then she threw them far out into the sea. (laughs) I saw them sailing lightly on the water. I cried out for someone to save them. And when no one moved, I started to scream uncontrollably. I knew that my aunt was the wickedest woman in the world. (laughs) I must add, there's a brilliant quote from um, the... Galley Beggar, publisher, have published uh, ebook editions of these books, and each one has an, a new introduction, Maiden Voyage, the introduction is by Susie Fay. But the introduction to Welsh's second book, In Youth is Plagiarist, by Steve Finbo, and Steve Finbo wrote this, which is very relevant, John, to the bit you've just read. He said, Welch's characters are always a little grotesque, somewhat ill, and verging <laughs> on the insane, but only in the way that we all are. <laughs> That's yeah, genius. I read the journals before. Ah! <laughs> ah, ding, the journals! <laughs> uh, listeners to Batlisters will know that the journals <laughs> occupy a special place. In fact, the only Denton Welch that I had read before Maiden Voyage were the journals, very unusually for me, and I'd read them on uh, our guest's recommendation, who, understanding how my brain works brilliantly, had said to me, have you read... Uh, the journals. <laughs> I went, no. <laughs> and you said? I said something along the lines of they 
are as if a Stanley Spencer painting could come to life. Oh, lovely. I received a copy for Christmas immediately. <laughs> um, They're wonderful. I have just a couple, a couple of very short sentences by Welsh standards here from the journal that I think really evoke that. This is from 1943. A woman on a chestnut horse has just ridden by, looking romantic against the background of steel-blue shallow hills and bleached cornfields. The sky is thickly clouded, heavy with rain, that won't fall. I've eaten chocolate and cherries and read two stupid short stories by Somerset Maugham. I would like to build a tower here, on the top of this hill, with three storeys, a kitchen and living room on the first, a bedroom and bathroom on the second, and a gazebo and workroom on the third. Perhaps on top of that, pillars holding up a lintel, but no roof. I would like to lie in the tower quietly, forever. Mm. <laughs> That's great. Mm. Just one more thing to say about the fact that was written in 1943 and he was a young man crippled. Yeah. Who, oh, yes. That's and who, who, who wasn't, couldn't partake in the war, obviously, and, and lived in Kent. If you think of war novels, war literature, wartime literature, so... Hangover Square was 41, I yeah, think. Yeah, Nigel Bolchens, the one we did recently, was 41 as well. The, yeah. um, the green novels, Brighton yeah. Rock, leading up to the war. Yeah. And, you know, Brighton's not that far from Kent. Yeah. Um, they're all full of, I don't want to say spivs, but you know what I mean. Yeah. They're down-at-heel people. They're people who are living fairly sordid lives. And it's rare, it's not rare, but it's wonderful to see the country and the countryside especially described by a young man during that time with such wide eyes and the cynicism of war is lacking entirely through these journals. Can you can you tell us a bit about Denton himself? Well, I was just gonna. Andy's gonna do that. I was gonna do that. Andy, can the, you tell us a bit? Yeah. About <laughs> so I'm just gonna read this biographical note. children. <laughs> Here we go. So Denton Welch was born in Shanghai in 1915, the youngest of four boys to a wealthy British-American family. After leaving his English boarding school, Repton, Welch decided to follow his dream of becoming a painter and studied art at Goldsmiths in London. The physical injuries sustained in a cycling accident in 1935, however, saw him increasingly turn towards a hitherto secondary interest, writing. When Welch's debut, Maiden Voyage, was published in 1942, it was an instant literary sensation. Quote, I have been told that it reeks of homosexuality, wrote Winston Churchill's secretary. I think I must get it. (laughs) (laughs) This was followed uh, by In Youth is Pleasure in 1945, and after his premature death from spinal tuberculosis in 1948, the publication of his unfinished masterpiece, A Voice Through a Cloud. Quote, if any writer has been neglected, it is Denton, wrote William Burroughs in 1985. But Welsh is also a writer who has attracted a firm coterie of admirers ranging from Auden to Alan Bennett, Edith Sitwell to John Waters. And then there's a quote here by Edmund White that I would like to um, also draw your attention to. When I was reading this, I said it reminded me of Wheatsmith, said it reminded me of Stevie Smith. Yeah. And it reminded me of somebody else, and I couldn't put my finger on who it, on who it was. I knew that I really liked it, and I was thinking, what, what is this? I can't quite... Anyway, and then I found this quote from Edmund White... Denton Welch is one of those mysterious writers who are always interesting. The more his world is reduced to a hospital room 
and a handful of human contacts, the more fascinating he becomes. It is the precision of his observations, the fierce but gentle strangeness of his personality or his love of nature that captivates the reader. Like Jean Rees, Welch has the power to generate interest out of even the most meagre materials. He had this gift from the beginning, but suffering and illness refined it into a white-hot flame. And the thing about Welch, which... I mean, I just want to read everything by Denton Welch now, mm, is yeah. that as his career goes on, uh, his, his, his horizons literally become more and more limited. That he can... First of all, he, he can't leave the house very often. Then he can't write much. He can write two or three sentences a day. So to be able to summon up the energy, not exactly to write, but to recall... Yes, and with such precision as and, mentioned by Ben White. There. And I think that sense of isolation that was precipitated by his illness and, and that sense of being confined allowed and, and to only have his own source material, his own life as source material to, to dwell on, allowed him to write about his sexuality in a way yeah. that I think at the time definitely caused ripples, but also... There's a wonderful uncertainty about it. I mean, obviously, Absolutely. he's a, in the way that Spencer admired men's bodies in the paintings of Crookham and loved flesh. Yeah, that yeah, was yeah. for Spencer. That was an act of faith and born of religion. But in Welch, it's similar, but coming from somewhere very different. But and is very rarely resolved. The sort of Homosexual almost encounters yeah. in, in Maiden Voyage are extraordinary. They really are. Yeah, oh no, they are amazing. Uh, and, the, and the fact that they're used in a kind of there's an ebb and flow of them, in, which actually within the novel and we, we you know, the, the thing that's so interesting about this book is that you've talked about John and, and Richard. You've both talked about the, the the extent to which this has some relationship to nature writing mm. that it has you know there's the idea of going out looking at things being part of the countryside but it also has a very contemporary auto fiction thing yeah. going on where you use fiction and you barely change the names or events but you use fiction to tell the story you want to tell which of course you could say you could do in a memoir and yet I, this doesn't feel like a memoir does it, it feels no. like a novel it feels like a book written by Denton Welch. I mean, that's the absolute truth. I mean, that's yeah, what I... Because I, I, yeah. we say, I mean, it's, it's a... You kind of... It meanders. You don't know where it's going. It sort of stops. It's, it's not... I like... There's a great quote by Alan Bennett. I'm just trying to... One of the things I, I love is the idea that you go from... You go from Edmund White... And, 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 and Burroughs mm. and Brian Geisen, who also really liked his work. But then Alan Bennett says that he reading the journals, he says it's a, a, a script for a documentary by Humphrey Jennings <laughs> or notes for a film by Michael Powell. And it, that's sort yeah, of true. It's the same. And you think you have got that yeah, Jennings, yeah. you've got yes. Jennings, Michael Powell, you've got that kind of Stanley Spencer, it's you've got that incredibly English dream vision. But also, and, and Jarman, which I yes. think, that, but then you've also got this kind of American. Sort of sensibility as well, which sort of goes into 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 beats. I, I want to and, and ask into, into into you. I've got a tenuous link for once. <laughs> I'm going to ask you, you assembled experts, which influential figure on the punk rock scene said the following of Denton Welch. <laughs> Denton Welch is not like... many of them read. So that narrative... <laughs> oh, okay, exactly. Right. Wait, wait till I, wait till well, I give you not yeah. Sid Vicious. Can I... <laughs> Denton Welch is like a British baby Proust 
in his astounding grasp of his own usually mundane experience. Nothing much happens in his books but the most wonderful writing. Can I say John Savage? It's not John Savage. It's definitely not Tony Parsons. I'll give you a clue. It's, a, it's, it's an American, it's an influential American figure. Richard Hale. It is Richard Hale. Well, that's that Burroughs sort of Warholian kind of... And Richard Hale ran away from his boarding school. Did he? Yes. Yeah. With Tom Verlaine. Yes. And Verlaine, I was just about to say, Verlaine yes. and Rambo, that's they both, part of the same Yes, exactly. There's a lovely... I, got, I did find one lovely John Waters quote also about the, uh, the Germans, which is... A, so precious, so beyond gay, so deliciously subversive. It's enough to make illiteracy a worse social crime than hunger. By John Walton. No, thank you. But for me, it really it reminded me of what I was like as a teenager. Mm. That feeling of you're on kind of tenterhooks constantly. And being and convinced that everyone's happy. Can I just say, yeah. if you've ever That's heard... That's really true, you, actually, just, just on yeah, the pure, Just on that. pure writing, this is Victoria Station... In the evening, but listen to this. Victoria seemed like a dark, cloudy aquarium where great black eels wriggled swiftly <gasps> into swallow up mouthfuls of small, eddying fishes. From the crowd, faces glanced up, pale and floating, like spirit pictures. Just incredible. That's. And don't you think, John, it's as you say at the start of the book, he goes on this, he, he is trying to leave himself yeah. and leave everything. And it's the journey, the maiden voyage is the journey back from that first point of departure and the fact he's run away and has had to come back he's almost seeing everything through a runaway's eyes right, yeah for the first for time, the first mm-hmm. time yeah, that's... it is border on this on, on surrealism and, and it was you know that thing of, of uh, i think alan bennett talks about him being you know against drabness in all its forms and and, and his his kind of feel for color as well which it's an extraordinary chapter where he drags up as well He's always yeah, going yeah, yeah, away yeah, yeah. from places yeah. because he yeah. can't bear it. <laughs> and, when, and when he's in China, he decides the thing to do in quite a hostile territory is to borrow his friend's dress and makeup <laughs> and see if he can get away with walking around them. And then, and then gets in a panic. <laughs> Where don't forget, the Chinese are, are of that time. There's a big nationalistic yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. movement going on about the effete, corrupt. Westerners, so interesting. But it's that sense of. But to see what will happen. Yes, yes. Um, But it is, you know, a lot of literature has these moments of rupture and these moments of violence interspersed with the mundane. But they're often, if you think of, I don't know, something like Kathy Acker or a lot of those 80s sort of semiotics authors. there's a kind of punkish violence to it all. But in this, it's or very... Or they tend to over-freighted with significance. Yes. Whereas the, the, the thing about Denton Welsh, the disorienting thing is, it doesn't really feel... You don't really feel like you're in the, in the grip of, you know, I have some things that I want to tell you and I'm going to dress them up in a story. It's like yeah. he's me... At, he, at, 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 and then there is order there. He doesn't kind of have the usual... Horror response. I mean, he responds horrifically. To this, is, this is the only time uh, listeners will ever hear me reading from some journals. But I must just read this. But I thought this was so wonderful. This is 19th of September 1944. Yesterday, Eric, who, who was his lover, yesterday, Eric and I went to the dentist in Seven Oaks. And while I was sitting yeah. in the waiting room with him, I idly turned the pages of Vogue and suddenly came on my own face there in the March (laughs) issue. Then I went out and bought hair stuff. 
And when I came back, Eric was waiting with his tooth pulled out and looking a little strained. We sat in the public gardens, Eric spitting blood a little into the flower beds. <laughs> then we walked up to Aplin's and Eric had only green salad whilst I had Welsh rarebit and tomatoes and cake with imitation cream and coffee. I thought again of our snug place in the leaves under the fallen tree, looking out onto the rising hill with the smoky curtain of rain falling into the stiff, still green bracken and the curious high squeaking of some solitary wood pigeons and then their gurgling coo. An eternal moment, always dissolving, which will yet reoccur a thousand thousand times to a thousand thousand other people when we are dead, who will look out in the same way through the windows in their heads and see the falling rain, the bracken, the pattern of the oak bark, and wonder, and go on wondering for years. God, what a, mm-hmm. amazing. First of all, what a gear change from mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. one paragraph to the next, <laughs> but both so elegantly and wittily and, and compassionately done. Brilliant. There's no sense brilliant. through all of it, however, sort of, um, whatever the sense of the vague sense of, sort of hijinks at times, I think that passage you've just read proves that it's never really contrived. No. It's not, it's not yeah. played for laughs. Yeah, and it's not, yeah. it's not camp. Uh, it's no, he, and it's not. Um, he has no self pity. No, there's never any self pity at all. Even in no. the bits, well, that was the thing that's so remarkable at the start of Maiden Voyage. You're expecting him to. He's. I think that Richard Hell description, that baby British priest, that is yeah. that is very good actually. I think that's um, accurate. I Matthew, don't, I sorry, don't think I've, I, I've read a, a book that's had so many sentences starting with the first person singular though. No. I, 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 I. Well, that's his subject, right? Matthew, do you have any link, however tenuous, to this discussion? I've got a tenuous link. Of course I've got a tenuous link. So my tenuous link is what, and I'll ask this to you, Andy, what is the tenuous link between me, the editor Matthew Clayton, yeah. and this book, Maiden Voyage? Um, Hazard a guess. You went to Repton. Hazard a guess. Did you do a book on Herbie Hancock? No. Mm. The editor, Matthew Clayton, is that a clue? No, no, it's not a clue. Mm. Um, Denton Welch was in an early lineup of Fairport Convention <laughs> that you saw as a child. <laughs> Very no, so, early. So, what it is, no, is no there's, a, there's, there's a wonderful bit in it where he goes and stays at his uncle's house. And in his, uh, his uncle's house in Sussex, I think it is. Uh, and in uh, his uncle's house, he has copies of the Sussex County magazine. And I read that with complete joy because I absolutely adore the Sussex <laughs> County magazine. <laughs> to be fair, Matthew, quite hard to guess. <laughs> so the... <laughs> it's a difficult one this weekend. Yeah. So, um, yes, so the Sussex mm. County magazine was published between uh, 1927 and 1956. And it had articles on things like... Um, Sussex Turnpike anecdotes or <laughs> queer things about Sussex windmills. And bizarrely, last night I gave a talk about a Sussex County magazine columnist, uh, Barclay Wills, who wrote about wow. um, Sussex Shepherds. And I gave a talk at um, Michael Smith, the writer Michael Smith, yeah. now lives in Hastings and has a wonderful shop there called Borough Beer, wi- uh, Wine, Beer and Books. 
What's uh, it called, Matthew? It's called Borough <laughs> Wine, Beer and Brooks. Yeah. And he does a fantastic night there called Weird Shit. And I went and read, uh, did a talk about, no. about Barclay, Barclay Wills with my yeah. owner yeah. and a, a great guy called what? Gareth E. Reese. Yes. He was fantastic. He was absolutely fantastic. Have you got a turnpike anecdote that you can maybe tell us off the top of your head? (laughs) I do actually, but you don't want to go there. There's a turnpike right at the end of my road, which is used by the local burger van as a storage place. So they kind of keep it open, and I sometimes sneak in there to have a look at it. It has all the turnpike prices outside, but I think they're made up. What do. Buckley Wills do. Oh, he wrote terrible books about Sussex Shepherds, and he was obsessed by the sound. He was a nature writer. He was a nature writer. <laughs> <laughs> Anthology. Put, put him with the others. Did he go for a walk? <laughs> 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 he ran the He ran a fruit and veg shop in Worthing. He moved to London to be closer to the South Downs, but he was really obsessed by shepherds, so he spent his time walking on the South Downs befriending shepherds, and he, he, <laughs> and he collected, a, well. collected a large amount of um, shepherding paraphernalia horn lamps <laughs> falcon crooks that kind of Sheep. stuff amazing umbrellas <laughs> um, yeah I have to uh, thank you that, that was tenuous, both tenuous it? it was rich in colour <laughs> thank you very much I have to mention uh, uh, we've noticed on Backlisted that uh, people like to be able to buy the books that we talk about cheap <laughs> and, um, and why not and why yes. not and indeed we are able thanks to brilliant Galley Beggar Press um, they have told us that if you email them through their website uh, or on uh, info at galleybeggar.co.uk, go and get a pen and a piece of paper, <laughs> info at galleybeggar.co.uk, and you put backlisted in the subject, of, uh, uh, subject line of that email, um, you can buy the ebook of Maiden Voyage from them and one other... Uh, they will then give you one other Denton Welch book for free. Wow. Brilliant. So um, uh, email them, put backlisted in the subject line. Um, I think we all strongly recommend this book. I know we love all the books we cover, of course, but I have to say I felt, as I do occasionally when we do backlisted, that this is one of those things where I feel very grateful to have the opportunity to go forward and read everything by this author. I think that's exactly right. Remarkable. I, I mean, those just the little glimpses of the journals that have come out today make me want to go and grab them and wrestle them to the ground. <laughs> Denton would like that. Yeah, he would have probably enjoyed that. <laughs> Covered in oil. Um, anyway, I think that's probably all we've got time for. Thank you for listening to Backlisted. Um, we are available on all the usual channels. Um, Facebook, uh, Backlisted Pod. Twitter, at Backlisted Pod. Uh, on the Unbound website, unbound.co.uk forward slash Backlisted. Uh, thank you to uh, our guest, Richard. Uh, as ever, to Matthew. Thank you, Matthew. Um, and thank you to, to all of you for listening. Uh, See you next time. Thanks ever so much. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash Backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.